Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 150. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I am doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so uh, this week... We are starting a new interview with Dwayne Englehart. Now, in classic Nerd Journey fashion, this is part one of two. Um, and we we knew Dwayne from the uh, Spiceworks community, right? Yes, indeed. Dwayne is a veteran of that community. Met back in the earlier days. Nice. Right. So I think the things that I remember taking away from this interview were like how he got into the industry. He had kind of a non-traditional background uh, for IT operations, although, you know, again, it kind of underlined for me, like, what is a traditional background for IT? <laughs> and um, and then that first transition to a full-time IT operations position, those are the things that, like, I remember jumping out. How about you? Well, I think that to encapsulate the whole part one it's really a journey through technological change and how Dwayne's career grew as technologies changed in a huge way in his specific industry. I'm not going to say what that is, right? We tease at it a little bit. He's moving from one industry to another, the other being IT. So let's just leave it there. And without further ado, here's part one with Dwayne Englehart. Hey, Dwayne, welcome to the uh, Nerd Journey podcast. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Well, I'm Dwayne Englehart, and I don't do anything I don't want to anymore. I'm retired. Well, that's really exciting. Um, We want to hear what you used to do then, I guess. Oh, well, I used to be the, um, I guess, a VP of uh, network administration at Wallace Bank. untechnically my boss said I was the infrastructure architect when I when I retired but before that I was a network administrator technology director and probably called various names by different people but we'll not go there some more flattering than others I'm sure I'm sure (laughs) well how did you get into the uh, industry I was always kind of a tech guy uh, primarily a musician I always wanted to be a musician first uh, but even back in the 60s, I built my own little AM radio uh, so I could hide it under my pillow and listen to the radio at night when nobody else was could tell me to turn it down. Uh, and then when I was uh, working at a small school as a band director, the small school situation was such that I had to find an extra class to teach besides band. And so I taught PE, Texas history, math, and then 
computers came along. They said, hey, maybe you could do this. And then there was a quick road to certification. So I took it, got certified so I wouldn't have to quit changing classes I taught every year. So I, I taught uh, beginning with VIC-20s and Commodore 64s and and went from there. My wife liked to do accounting work and I helped her out on the manual ledgers. And then eventually I told her, hey, you know, there's a, a computer spreadsheet that can do this a whole lot better and doesn't make mistakes like I do. So um, she says, well, go do it. So, you know, I picked up an Epson way back in the days with one of those $400 20 meg hard drives in it and I got Lotus 1, 2, 3 and there we went. So kind of the traditional path of uh, teacher to PE to uh, computers. If that's traditional, that's... <laughs> Actually, I used the computer as a band director. I used it a lot because I had a lot of students, and you have to keep track of instruments, uniforms, uh, grades, tests, and all that kind of stuff. And most teachers would have 35 to 60 kids to grade. I had in between 180 to 220. So computers helped me get my job done. And eventually what happened is they said, you know too much about computers to teach band anymore. We need you to teach computers. And they swapped me over and I couldn't find another band job. So I just went with it. You roll with the flow. So you had a techie band after that? Uh, just, I, I still play. I still perform. Um, I'll teach kids on the side and things like that. Uh, so music is still my first love, but I'll play around with computers too. You call that one of the really interesting early transformational industries, right? Which was accounting. Like people, I think today can't get their minds around the fact that spreadsheets used to be sheets of paper, right? That, and when you had to do a recalculation, you had to, you know, use a pencil or a pen and recopy like an entire sheet. When you have 17 columns that you need to recalc and yeah. then add up, and then you're looking for that one error and trying to find it and see, you know, which one, which number's off here. And you got to edit it up this way and you got to edit it up that way. And yeah, yeah, accounting was a biggie. But my wife turned that part of the, the business over to me, you know, keeping track of the ledgers and things like that. And you know, I figured, hey, if I got to do it for her and, and the stuff that she's doing, I'll use it for my stuff, too. So that's what I did. How about taking that teaching experience into dealing with end users? How did that affect the way you helped people when you started supporting the technology side of the, of the school? Well, I taught what was uh, considered, I guess you'd say, the basic computer information to middle school kids to begin with. So it wasn't, it was teaching them about computers and how computers developed and how the technology developed from, uh, you know, Babbage back in the 1800s all the way up to um, with Lady Lovelace. And then you've got uh, oh, the, the general back in the, can't remember her name now, the one who found the first computer moth bug back in there. So I was teaching this computer literacy stuff to to kiddos and when you start you when i went to the banks they weren't using computers yet they were using green screens they were using you know the mainframes 
and that but they didn't know what they were doing. It was more or less just data entry, and and the mainframe did all the work. Uh, but when I went to the banks, it was a transition time because we had a lot of machines that were half and half. You had a card in there that you press a couple of buttons, hotkeys, and switch it over to a green screen. And then, you know, when you wanted to go back to computing, you hit buttons and you went back to the computer side. So you were going from green screen back to computers, mainframe to the computer, local computer, back and forth constantly on a daily basis. It got to where the people with the mainframes were using special programs to actually screen scrape the green screen so that you wouldn't have to just copy information from here and paste it in over here. So going back and forth, they were just scraping the screen to find the data if it had to be in the right place, of course. It's just kind of like scanning software for checks and things now. Uh, as long as it was in the right place, you could get it to go from the mainframe computer, which might be thousands of miles away, over to the local computer in front of you. So we were just doing those kind of things, and it's like an education thought. You have to teach them what's happening so they know what to do and what not to do, what happens when you don't do it right, and how to correct it and so forth. So it, it was, it was, the education part was very helpful in teaching the end users at the bank. The biggest difference between the bank and the educational part was in education, you might have three servers in a school district. And when you, and, you know, 100, 200, 300 users per server. When you go to the banking industry, you might have, you know, when I ended up, we had 80 servers for approximately 180 people. So the server to user ratio is quite a different, uh, quite a different from the educational area. Ed education really doesn't require that much computing, whereas the banking industry has computers doing almost everything nowadays, back and forth. Did you get to basically see a transition from mainframe computing to like kind of the open systems like Unix servers with still, I guess I'm going to assume some legacy That's processes. That's pretty much where I came into it, John. It was, okay. it was when I came into it, you know, they were still using the mainframes, but they were in the middle of processing. Email was probably the first big local usage of things, but then they found out that they could keep the detailed trial balances and they could go into the, you know, search a detailed trial balance in a spreadsheet and they could find what they wanted much quicker than they could go through and manually manipulate the screens and on the mainframe servers to find the information they were looking for. And printing out, you could, you know, when you print something from the mainframe, you can't say I want page seven you got to print the whole thing. It might be 400 pages. Then you got to go look for page seven. So it, there was a, I was in there for that transition from the mainframes to the locals to the, the, I guess you'd call them SQL servers. They weren't technically Microsoft SQL or, or open SQL or anything like that. But, you know, basically when I started, uh, we were still using pretty much the 80 place note card type stuff. And then transitioned on into other quicker means of entering data. And what about educating yourself on some of those newer technologies that you needed to switch over to? 
I always, I always tried to stay two or three steps ahead of my users uh, so I could test it out. And then I would, you know, have the pros and cons and, and decide whether they needed it, whether they wanted it. And then I would know what they needed to do with it. Uh, there were some steps, though, where I ran into, even in the education field, the um, I found in the 90s, in, in the mid-90s, I found an application for Apple II machines. And remember, Apple II in the 90s was not really a thing anymore. But what we found was some software that had been written for Apple IIs that could teach language and math to elementary kids and did a very good job of it. So, you know, my I put the system in there and the teachers loved me for it because they said, we can go in there and we can hit a couple of buttons on this and get this set up. And our kids can go in there and do everything that we want them to do. And at the end of it, we get a printout saying what each one of them did and how well they did it. Uh, and then the guy who came after me took all that out because he said it's it's ancient technology. He said, you know, we don't want any of this stuff in here. We need to use Windows. This was in like 99. And, uh, you know, I heard from the teachers over there later that, hey, you should have never left. This guy comes in here and forces us to use Windows. Our kids didn't know how to punch the buttons, click the mouse or anything like that. It took us an hour to get set up. And we, by the time we got set up, we're, you know, our time's up and we, we couldn't get anything done anymore. Sometimes you have to, you have to see what something's good for and use what it's good for. And you don't have to stay, you know, you don't have to have the latest and greatest in order to make it work. You just need something to do what you need it to do. You know, if it works, don't, don't kill it and move on. So you, you've got to determine what works for you and pick it out. One of my outside customers was buying a new super gaming computer every six months and then calling on me to transfer everything from one computer to the other. Well, I finally talked him into Microsoft 365. So it's easy to transfer all his stuff from one computer to the other because everything's on OneDrive. All I have to do is get his account set up on the new computer. Boom, everything is there. You know, install his Office apps and, and he's done. It's so interesting how you're talking about managing that change. You know, you manage change um, for individuals and then the school district, you know, how they had, I guess, overcorrected on the change. What was that change like in the banking industry, like your transition into the banking industry that I, I can't imagine the technology that you're using at the school district was exactly the same as the technology they were using at the bank? Well, at the bank, we were using a, a, a BSD-based email system at the bank when I first got there, they really didn't have email and we used NT email internally only. There was no such uh, thing at the bank. You know, exchange wasn't even available yet in 99. You know, there were various, you know, paid providers. But, you know, I remember the BSD system that I used back in at, at East Bernard, the school district, and we had everybody on it. Then uh, I said, well, you know, I look at Linux and I found a Linux that was fairly easy to use. And I, I set up email on it for the bank and we used it 
Oh, we used email on that Linux box from 2002 until we got our first Exchange server in 2007. And technically, it had to be rebuilt once because the motherboard had a part go bad, shut down right before a Boy Scout trip, and I had to rebuild it before they let me go on the Boy Boy Scout trip. So I spent an entire Friday night, most of a Saturday, rebuilding that server and reinstalling um, email. And at that time, I upgraded the email to Postfix. So it was a little bit simpler. Had to learn real quick over one day the differences between the other system and and Postfix and go on from there. But about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I had it up and running with everybody's emails move over and everything. And... um, Caught a flight, caught up with the Boy Scouts back up in Lubbock, and and went on from there. And that server ran then from 2002 until the exchange until we migrated to the Exchange server in 2007, and never went down once after that. Nice. So it was five years that it it continuously served. So uh, you know that got me started in Linux, and and uh, so I still I still run a couple of Linux servers at home as well. In fact, I don't have a Windows server at home right now. I just have Linux boxes. So it's, it's, you have to, you have to use what's good for you, uh, and what's cost effective. You know, there's no sense in wasting money on computing when you don't have to. Well, you mentioned the, the computing needs at the bank were much greater in terms of amount of compute per user was, was much greater. But they also had, I would think, probably greater uptime requirements than the school, or maybe just a little bit more pressure because of the industry you were in on someone in a technology oh, yeah, role. You're definitely right there. I mean, that's part of the stress. And as you said, as I said earlier, the um, Boy Scout trip was coming up. It was a horseback uh, ride through Philmont, so I was had been preparing to go for for ages. And then the server, the email server goes down the day before we took off. So, you know, my boss says, you're not leaving until our email system's back up and running. He said, we'll pay for your trip up there. We'll, you know, we'll fly you wherever you need to go to catch up with them, but get this thing running. I mean, I had to go buy a motherboard because it, it actually ended up being a, probably a capacitor or one of the, the CMOS chip parts of the chip or something went out. And so the Linux couldn't boot at that point. Replaced that, decided to upgrade Linux at the same time with it. Was The hard drive was still there, so I was able to, you know, pull all the emails back in and get everything going. And, and so, like I said, when it was all said and done, it was it was ready. Uh, we had a spot in the bank where Windstream did us a, a little nutty. They were closing down a data center that we were in and wanted us to move next door to another data center, an older one. So in doing so, they said they wanted to give us all new circuits. Well, it wasn't something that we're going to have to pay for. You know, we had to kind of go with it because they weren't going to keep our old circuits. Uh, even though we were in the same building as, as the new data, the old data center, new data center, whichever one you call it, call it. And they actually were running a cable from one to the other. I mean, a cable. So you just. Just one cable, right? Just one cable. That's all it was, is <laughs> one internet cable. And they were, they were running it to the other room from the, the data center that they had us moved to. But instead of just connecting us back to that same cable port, they said, we want all new circuits and go down. Well, 
we moved all our server equipment. We had a little bit of issue with a, an HPE system that didn't want to completely boot after we moved it. Got HP on the line and, and got it running again about six in the morning and in, in time before anything else, anybody was going to need it. In the meantime, we, we had no network traffic or we couldn't get any data across the network. We had network traffic. We could ping across, but we could, had no network. No, nothing, no other packets would go. And I sat there for three days trying to convince Windstream there was an issue with the size of the packets. And this was on Wednesday night, Thursday morning when I was talking with them because we had our server back up so we could actually run everything and test. And it was Sunday afternoon at one o'clock before I got an engineer that finally says, oh, yeah, that sounds like an MTU issue. I said, yeah, go find it. And it turns out in their new circuits, they had misconfigured one of the inter- their internal switches and only set it for like, what was it? It was something like 125 MTUs, you know, Oops. when it should have been 1372. So it was like we were down for three days out externally. We, we, or each bank at that time, you know, they could run locally with certain amount of information that they all had their local servers yet. So they could actually get on, they could do some stuff, but no email, no internet. And, you know, we have a lot of applications that went across the Internet. Yeah, it, it was very stressful. I didn't sleep uh, more than about four, five, six hours over those three days. Man, it's those, it's those times of change that you really understand what fragility is. Oh, yeah. That's, that's why I insisted that we have two data centers and that everything be redundant and redundant and and redundant. <laughs> if one goes down, are you, if, you know, when I left with, if one server, if one data center went down, nobody would even know it because we'd automatically fail over to the second. You know, nobody except IT would know it. And we would be stressed bringing the first one back up, the main one. And they would see things are a little slow, but we wouldn't have the problem of uh, being down, down. Sorry, that became something that regulators actually wanted you oh, to be yeah. able to to do, right? If yeah, you're we, a bank, we got very high high marks from our regulators because we insisted you know, on being up full time. Yeah, something I don't even remember the regulation, but if you're above a certain size, then you actually need to be able to demonstrate like full failure of your primary data center move everything over to the secondary data center, transact there, and then move everything back. Yeah, the level was larger than Wallace Bank was for a long mm-hmm. time. When I joined the bank, we were at like $65 million in assets. When I left, we were just had, had just gone over a billion. So we had gone through three or four le- different levels as they move up. And now I think... They're, they're running somewhere close to $2 billion. I mean, that just goes to show you with the right network administration how you can drive growth at a bank, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, my, my boss was a, a member of the family, and, and his background was DB administration, database administration. He, he knew a lot, but he didn't know how everything interconnected. So he knew how the stuff should work, but he didn't really know how it worked. 
You know, I taught him a lot over the five years that I worked. No, actually, I worked with him seven years. For the seven years I worked with him, I taught him quite a bit on how things were connected in order to make his database systems work properly. And um, he's decent now. He, he, he knows and can understand whether he actually can do it all or not. I don't know that for sure. But, I, you know, he knows what it should look like and what it, how it should act. That's a really good trait in a manager wanting to learn from employees. I don't think he all was of willing. them are that way. He was willing because he he came in not as a network administrator, but he he came in because he was uh, the oldest son of the the primary owner, and he primary owner wanted to get his sons involved with the business so it you know he could stay the the bank could continue on uh, when he re- finally retires. When I don't know when he's going to do that or not, or if he's going to. He wanted Faisal to actually come in and 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 take over the department, but Faisal came in knowing he didn't know a lot of stuff, and knowing that I had everything running already anyway. They'd always treated me well, and and I just you know took it upon myself to make sure that he understood everything that we needed to go on, and, and you know eventually he he fought for everything that we needed, so we could actually put in things that we. Felt like we needed to keep things up and running to get those five nines at the bank. It, it was a good trip. I, I enjoyed working there, and uh, I have nothing, nothing bad at all to say about him. It was, it was a good gig. It sounds like your your rapport with him and educating him on how the technology impacted the bank's business, the uptime, the availability, how it impacted you know outages and things like that really turned his head to be an advocate for everything you got. We got told no a few times for some stuff that we wanted in order to increase reliability and uptime and and make it less stressful on us. Uh, But generally, if we kept at it for six months or more and could demonstrate exactly what we needed to, what what we expected to get out of the return, the return on the investment, if it was going to be a six months or less or increased reliability to the point where the failover was go up a couple of nines and that, you know, we could generally talk him into fighting for us at the, the board and getting what we needed. You know, if I lacked for it, I found a way to, to get it one way or another. How did you learn that lesson that you needed to be able to demonstrate business value to the bank? like either through increased reliability or some kind of return on investment. Because honestly, in IT operations, I never learned that lesson. I learned it when I got into pre-sales. Well, John, I I grew up with that. (laughs) I came from a family of eight. So if we wanted something, we had to prove the value of what we wanted. You know, and if there was value and... There was an ROI that worked. You were good for it. I did the same thing through my teaching career, but I was not nearly as as successful at it as I was in the banking area because in the schools, you have more politics. You have, um, you know, you have administrators that that go between between you and and the board and the board ultimately controls the money, but they won't even see what you need if the administrator won't put it in front of them. And you don't want to go over an administrator's head because then you're, you know, then you've shot yourself in the foot. So you don't do that, that kind of thing. So the banking industry was much better about it. If I could prove an ROI 
on it and work. And generally I was able to do that or I could show that I could get something done with a little small investment and, and make a big value to the bank. And uh, I told uh, the, the owner before his, he brought his sons in, I said, you know, I will spend your money like if it was my money. You know, I won't ask you for anything that I don't think we need. I won't spend your money any more than if it was my money and it was coming out of my pocket. So, and he trusted me to do that. And I, I tried to maintain that trust and, and didn't, never violated it. So I, I really had good rapport with upper management to the, to the point where if we were asking for something, they knew we had a reason for it. If we could demonstrate what that reason was, what the ROI would be, or what the value to the bank would be, generally we could do it and move that way. I mean, that's, that's just a basic business thing. You, 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 if you can make the business run better, you know, all the more to power to you. Now I, I did have a big failing one night. Um, COVID had hit and the bank went from working probably by then we were had branches from Atlanta to Los Angeles. So our, we, we had increased our hours. We added an hour before and, and two hours after our usual work day without adding any IT people or adjusting schedules. So when COVID hit, suddenly all these people were having to roll at different times and they wanted to work all night long fulfilling SBA loan applications and things like that. When we were trying to find a place, where are we going to, when are we going to back up? How are we going to back up? Uh, you know, what is our timeline going to look like for recovery? And so there was when COVID first and they first moved these things in there, I was at a point where one of our servers was overloaded and we needed to move data from one server to another server with more space. And so I had scripted everything and uh, gone through it. And at four in the morning, I pushed the button to go and decided to take a nap. And at 630, uh, my coworker called me. He, he said, hey, the loan drive is empty. I said, wait, it was supposed to be copied. He says, it's empty. And, and I looked back at the script and the script had moved things backwards. So it moved from the empty server to the other one and copied everything over, which essentially meant it wiped it all out. I had a redundant copy at the second data center. It wasn't fully up to date. It was because they moved to, to expanded the hours. It, it was about three hours lacking full recovery, but you know, in the next 16 hours, I was recovering all that data and recovered everything probably except for about 47 files that had happened during that, that time. But, you know, it taught me, hey, get a second set of eyes. Even at 4.30 in the morning, get a second set of eyes on your scripts because it's it's real easy to to miss the fact that, hey, M is moving to Z and you don't want Z moving to M because Z is empty. So if you accidentally do that backwards and I'm, you know, dyslexia runs in my family. I don't usually have a problem with it, but that night I did. And so I didn't get much sleep again for the next 24 hours until I got everything kind of up back and running and, and back in place. You don't, you don't need dyslexia to make a mistake at 430 in the morning. Not <laughs> no, <laughs> but I mean, that's what you talked about stress, uh, that was stress, you know, moving from 
essentially a 14-hour day to a 24-hour day without without adding staff, not knowing where, you know, your, your boss is telling you, uh, can we skip the backups? <laughs> you say, no. <laughs> we may can limit what we back up, but we know we cannot skip backups. You don't want to skip backups. And they learn real quick. We don't want to skip backups. <laughs> hey, boss, can we skip recovery if something goes wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I think you 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 had um, you had a question to me earlier in uh, that you asked what was some of the best advice you were ever given. Uh, there was a, a guy who called himself the the backup guy. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd met with him and talked with him a few times. And he he says, you never have enough backup. You can back up everything once. You can back it up twice, three times. He says, there's going to be a situation at some point in time, you're going to need that third backup. He said, don't skimp on backup. And I, I tell my customers even now, I'm retired and I, I work with a few very small businesses that need help. They don't have access to good help. And I tell them now, I said, don't skip the backups. You've got to back up. Yeah, when it comes time to need that information and you don't have it, that's when things get dicey. That's when people get upset. What do you mean? Well, you told me not to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's go back to that stress piece, Dwayne, because we've all worked in an industry where a situation can go from an okay day to red alert we must be on this situation constantly trying to fix it with people breathing down our necks and communicating what what the status is because something very big, a big impacting system is down or not functioning as it should. How did you learn to deal with that over the course of your career being in technology for many years? I don't think you ever really learn to, to deal with it. You just deal with it. Uh, it helps if you have a manager above you who you can you can tell them hey hey you tell people leave us alone we're doing everything we can we're going to recover as fast as we can but if we're having to answer questions or answer emails or respond to text messages while we're doing all this it's just going to slow us down and distract us and keep us from from you know one of the things my uh, buddy who followed me at the bank did he says I can't wait till we actually get a door to our office that I can close because at the main headquarters, we were working in cubicles. I had an office in Wallace. So I actually, I liked working out in Wallace a lot better because I didn't have to deal with people walking up to me for the most part. And there were still a few people who would come running to my office if something went down. But John would have to sit there and... He'd have to sit there trying to work when people were coming around and hovering over him. And I didn't have to deal with that. I was glad I didn't have to deal with that. I, occasionally I did because I had to work out of the headquarters once in a while. But uh, we tried never to do that or, or we tried to get our boss to take that heat off of us and just, you know, tell him to let them know since he was a senior vice president and that he had a lot more pull than we did trying to tell him that, hey, you know, yes, we know it's down. We're working on it as fast as we can. There are limits to how fast we can work and there are limits to how fast this stuff can go. You just, you give me flashbacks with that hovering. 
<laughs> the hovering part. That's the part, that's the part that, that John hates the worst. And he was so glad to get a, an office with a door on it. So he could <laughs> close the door and say, no entry. <laughs> How did you drive technological change at the bank? You know, you're, you're talking about a time where platforms changed like once, maybe twice, maybe even three times over the course of like a career like that, you know, with like major, you know, kind of, you know, again, the mainframe to like the Unix systems, um, Unix to maybe like, you know, virtualization, virtualization to cloud. And I'm probably skipping over some things. And the entire time, I mean, there's still, I'm, sh- I'm assuming like banking, like applications that only run on mainframe. Right. So, uh, how do you stay ahead and then convince something, you know, somebody in the bank, like, Hey, we need to replatform this part of what we're doing. They usually came to me with the banking applications and it was just up to me to make it work and make the transition go smoothly. Uh, more from what you said though, my side was more network than anything. And so I transitioned from frame relay to NVPN which is you know, essentially a VPN that's managed by the, the carriers. And then we went to the basic uh, multi-site unit with routing in there. And then when I left, we were actually using SD-WAN. So during all those changes, the, the changes in the network, I tried to make sure that the users never even realized what was happening. I was able to transition from frame relay to NVPM with no more than about five minutes downtime overall between multiple sites. I think at the time we had like five sites and we were transitioning them all into the NVPN without anybody knowing that we we changed anything. The only thing they saw was faster response time, better voice calls, because even then we were, even back in the 90s, we were using voice over frame relay and taking advantage of the, of the fact that we could use a network to talk to different branches. It was pretty archaic, but it, it we had it working. And then uh, moving from NVNPN to everything else, it was it was it was very smooth. Uh, there were a couple of transitions we moved without any downtime at all. You know, the only thing the user saw was that hey, this is going better now. Yes. Yes. It was supposed to go better anyway, but it's, it's going smoother now because you got more bandwidth and you're running on a different system and you don't know it, but you know, the half the bank is on the old system, half the banks on the new system, but we still have it working. Uh, the SD WAN thing was probably, we had more downtime going to SD WAN than anything. And that was more because the transition from the dedicated circuits over to uh, internet circuits and that crossover effect in there and, and routing from one to the other and having to go and flip something off at the same time you're turning something on. Whereas all the other changes, we were able to flip something on and just redirect. And with the SD-WAN stuff, we had to actually, you know, turn stuff off or it was, it would go nuts. I like what you said, Dwayne. You'll never know it, end user, that half of you are on this old system and half of you are on the new system. The job is to be invisible. Right. Right? You're supposed to be invisible to them almost, and when you become visible, that means you're fixing a problem. Yeah, we're we're enablers. 
we enable them to do their job. The better we can do that and the less they have to talk to us, the better they like it and the better we like it as far as that goes. Now, if they start complaining, something slow, something's, you know, and generally that's what they complain about. Hey, it's slow. It's getting slower, you know, and you have to look and see why it's getting slower, slower. If there's something you have to change and stuff, you want to be able to change it if possible without them knowing it. And you want him coming up to you and say, hey, things are working a lot better. And or they don't tell you anything. Most of the time they don't tell you anything. Occasionally there's a few people that will come and say, hey, it's working better today. I like it. Right. We don't always hear the, the thank yous for things working well. We just hear when they're not. Yeah, we had three or four people that would, would come and say thank you. And, and they were very generous with, with their gratitude, which is pleasing. You know, that's what you'd like to. You know, most people... And most companies I've heard, you know, you know, if the end user doesn't have to talk to IT, that's the way they'd prefer it. But uh, in this case, you know, these people knew that we were keeping them running and saving them. You know, a lot of times they'd come up and say, hey, can you get this back for me? Can, can you find where this went? So forth like that. And we do our best to do that. And, uh, you know, they appreciate it and they made sure that they knew we appreciated it. So. And we knew they were making money for us, so <laughs> we, well, there you go. we like the money. <laughs> did you enjoy working with the end users, or did you enjoy working on the back-end systems and being a little more abstracted from the end users? I enjoyed working with most end users, and I enjoyed working on the back-end systems. I, I like communicating with people. I like talking with people, so... I don't have a problem working with end users. I, I had to a number of times tell my subordinates, you know, hey, they're an end user. They're important. They make money for us. They, you know, they're the ones who pay our salaries. You got to take care of them. They may not be right. They they may be wrong completely in what they're telling you. But, hey, you just accept it and you run with it. It's you, you can't really change it except to try to make it better. When I was the information security officer, the information security officer at a bank is uh, a very powerful entity. Essentially, as I told one of the presidents once, I said, hey, I can shut the bank down. He says, and I can fire you. I said, I know that. But if you don't do things the right way and if you leave the bank in a, in a place where the bank can, can have an issue that's going to cost us a ton of money, said, I am going to shut that down. I'm not going to let that happen. We, we, we had one person who once insisted that she know the passwords for every teller and that tellers could only use the password she gave them. And I was information security officer and I told her, no, the system has separate passwords for a reason. You can get in there as a supervisor. You can get in there and see what that person is doing, but you can't do it as that person. I'm not going to allow you to do it, you know, to mimic being someone else because, you know, that's not right. Well, she, you know, she went up above my head to her boss who went to my boss and my boss told him, hey, he's right. You're wrong. Well, I mean, that's a compliance issue, right? Right. I mean, that is the difference between like security and compliance, right? Like security, like you, you, can, you can be in the news and... Information security officer is, works very closely with the compliance officer. If they don't, they're not doing their jobs. So, yeah, it, it was a compliance thing, but at the same time, it was an information security thing. You, you can't have people pretending to be somebody else because the computer, there's no way the computer knows who it is. 
Username and password was all we had in those days. Usernames were out there. Passwords shouldn't be available to anybody but the user. I can't imagine like a situation where that would be good, right? Where like a regulator comes in and goes, well, I mean, how do you know that, the, you know, if, if this person knows everybody's passwords, then how do you know that these transactions were done by these people? It's like, you can't answer that question. Yeah, if you can't answer that good. question, you'll be shut down. Yeah. You're right. Okay, we're cutting it off there um, before part two, but, you know, just to underline the obvious, yet another teacher who's gotten into information technology. I, I don't remember who else I know who's done that transition before. Oh, it has to be somebody. Maybe we'll think of it in a second, John. Hmm. Okay. Can't be anybody important. Yeah. I wonder if that's the reason Dwayne was so good at encouraging his people to recognize the contributions of the end users to the overall revenue stream of the company and therefore, hey, these folks are paying our salaries. I really like the fact that he emphasized that to the team. You know, people are difficult to work with wherever you go. Whatever right. you do, you're going to rub people the wrong way. You're going to butt heads probably. But he advised his team, hey, take care of these people. They are yeah. making money for the company and so you can do your job, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. And one I think I never learned in my IT career. That's not quite true, but it was, I just didn't learn to align with it closely enough. Sure. And, you know, it helps if your manager emphasizes those things and helps you as the person doing the work see the value in supporting the organizational goals. It all goes back to, did the purpose of your work get communicated to you by people above you? And it sounds like in this case, Dwayne was very good at sharing that with the people that worked under him. Yeah, that makes sense. It really helps to uh, to understand and, and really ground yourself in your job. And I think, you know, it's like that Patrick Lencioni thing, right, where you need to understand how you're aligned with the goals of the organization that you're part of. And if you haven't read Three Signs of a Miserable Job by Patrick Lencioni, it's a really good read. It'll go fast. Yeah. Find it on Audible. How about that, those outage situations, John? We've we've been in those situations where there's a system down problem and everybody wants to know when it's going to be fixed because there's a wide impact. I like the fact that Dwayne's boss was able to be the one who took the heat and acted as the mouthpiece to the rest of the organization so that the team could focus on what they needed to do and less on communicating what they were doing. Yeah, that's such an important thing. I mean, I remember snarkily thinking to myself, oh, do you want me to spend all my time explaining to you what's going on or do you want me to fix the problem? You know, and... Uh, it's just part I, of you being that guy. Yeah, that's true. But I think my, my passive-aggressive response is always to just like, go into extreme detail and then like spend like tons and tons of time, you know, explaining exactly what was going on and then have the person say, Oh, so how are things going? And I'm like, Oh, well I'm not fixing the problem. I'm 
I'm telling you how things are going. That's that's not quite true. I was I was never that snarky. That's good. <laughs> the the thing that, you know, I think you pointed out going into the episode that really struck me listening back again was just the scope of technological change that Dwayne saw in his career from mainframe to cloud, right? It's like that is just so many shakeups, right? To go from mainframes to maybe to mini computers to open systems to you know, Linux to maybe cloud like that, you know, the number of different kinds of, of changes of platforming of replatforming. I mean, that's just, it goes to show you, you have to be flexible in your IT career and maybe even in your overall career, you know, what kind, you know, what you're willing to work on, because if you're married to something very, very specific, you know, chances are like, that's not going to be the state of the art for a huge amount of time. Like the the rate of technological change is just accelerating. It's not slowing down. Yeah, not at all. This reminds me of what Manny Sadu said back in the episodes when we had him on about finding the right technology to catch the wave with. And yes. I think over the course of Dwayne's career, he had opportunities to do that, you know, whether he realized it at the time or not. But he, it's it's like we're watching the ocean from the side and seeing him ride multiple waves throughout this yeah. journey, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's how I think of it. Well, I think we should at least give a little nibble on what's going to happen in part two, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we mentioned before that we do know Dwayne from the Spiceworks community. We're going to talk a little bit more about how he got into that, the value he received from being a part of the community next week. Besides knowing John, like in addition to knowing John. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You also heard that Dwayne is retired. We've not had someone on the show who is retired, so maybe we'll get to hear about what that transition's like and what he's up to these days. Awesome. Definitely looking forward to hearing that. Um, anything else pop into your head before we get out of here? No, sir. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Be sure and rate the show and review it if you have the time. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. Awesome. Well, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at Journeyman for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios.